Now like to bees in summer's heat from hives, outfly the citizens, some here, some there, some all alone and others with their wives. With wives and children some fly all for fear. Here stands a watch with guard of partisans to stop their passages or to or fro, as if they were not men nor Christians, but fiends or monsters murdering as they go. John Davis from The Triumph of Death. This is The Stack. I, I think the um, most important distinction to make today is between this SARS CoV 2 or whatever the uh, official name is, which in my opinion, it's not my opinion. I mean, it's it's objectively just pretty nasty virus and disease, so it should be taken seriously. And actually, my 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 own mother just tested positive for it this week, so I I, I get it. I'm not a denialist or anything. That is very distinct from COVID, which is a mental maggot that has eaten into our brains and into our leaders' brains and everything, and honestly hollowed out everything good in our society. And I I just think that we have to keep those two things in mind. So I don't want to come off as a conspiratorialist or a denialist or anything like that. However, I think that we have completed the deracination of our way of life through the approach to this virus. But I, I don't know about you, but that's where I come down on it. Yeah, I think I, I mean, I do agree with you. Of course, we talk about this stuff off the podcast. And um, yeah, my, I had an, I had an aunt. I'm from Georgia and I say aunt. I have an aunt. Um, I have an aunt who died from COVID. But the thing is, she was 80 something. She had um, uh, Alzheimer's and, right. and other comorbidities. And so I don't want to I don't want to diminish the you know what people are going. Through. I, I I actually know it, it ravaged my hometown as a matter of right. fact, but it ravaged it ravaged the old folks' homes. You know we had some some really high number of of um, like this, I think it was like 11, 11 deaths, which in my little hometown in Georgia is is um, basically like kind of like wiping of the population, out a, a, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Or at least of the of the aged population. So it was mm-hmm. a, it was quite a large number of the um, old folks living in the old folks homes and as i say i had an i, I had an uh, aunt who died as, as well and i certainly wouldn't diminish that on the other hand as you say it is it's become insane to me and when i see for instance when i see parents uh with their kids locked in the home for what is it now nine months or something like that right you know and these kids are missing a, a year of their life despite the fact that this disease doesn't touch children I mean, right. they're carriers, right? But yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, you know, I I see our, our house is right right next to a, uh, a playground, and I see a, a heartening number of parents that are taking their kids out there and stuff. But it has where I am, schools are on a town by town basis, and you have this crazy patchwork of online classes, some in person, and then there's you know, it it it's been a complete mess. Um, yeah, I mean, like you, I, I think uh, you know, one one of the last surviving friends of my grandparents died of it, and you know, but yeah, again, in his eighties, and and not well otherwise, you know. So it's um, yeah, it, it's you know, certainly not like a pleasant way to go. But the the approach now, and I I just heard Hong Kong is shutting down its schools for two weeks. 
And the reason is not because of a spike in COVID cases. It's because of the flu, upper upper respiratory tract infection spike. And it's like, is that's where we're going? Is now that this lockdown, which is just just a horrible word, is in the toolbox for the state and the government and it's been essentially accepted you know except for a few patriots in michigan that then were treated as terrorists now now this is just something that can be done you know i think hong kong is on the bleeding edge of now using it for non-covid reasons but i i expect that it will you know, just kind of enter into our consciousness as something acceptable in the future. But let, let's back up, you know, it's kind of like a JFK uh, assassination. Where where were you when you first heard of the SARS-2? I was in uh, my wife's hometown, which is about an hour southeast of Chengdu in China. And um, I'd actually gone down there for Chinese New Year. We got on I, so I was is, actually this really is mid mid January mid January I think it was January 18th I, okay because it was yeah. the it was the day right after we were released for Chinese New Year okay so I, I I think that's right I think that was like a Saturday or something like that so we went right down to our hometown and because I was really ready to get out of the city I'd been in the city for several months and I like to go to the countryside for about a, a week at a time because it's it, it's kind of like stepping into it's kind of like stepping into maybe like 1995 or something like that. Right. Um, they have, you know, they have internet with modern smartphones and modern televisions and all that stuff, but... Sewage? Uh, the Yeah, sewage, um, a good deal of... Uh, it's it's probably the, the most... It's it's the most garbage-strewn garbage streets I've ever okay. seen. It's really... Yeah. The first time I was, it was really shocking to me. And it's not necessarily typical of Chinese countryside towns, but mm-hmm. her her village, or well, it's not really a village. Small town has kind of got a reputation, at least in my mind, for being that kind of place. But it is nice. I mean, the countryside itself is is right. is um a, is a pleasure. And I'm from the countryside as well, so I love to get out of the city and, and uh, wander around. Nice nice area with um they have rice uh rice fields actually. And uh, it's famous for a type of noodle, a spicy, spicy uh, noodle. I think is made from potato starch, and that's pretty much it. It's a town of like maybe um, twenty thousand people, something like that. You know, with the mm. surrounding countryside, farmers and and small town merchants, that kind of thing. And um, anyway, we got down there. I've been down there four or five times, and they're always really fascinated to see the la wai, which is um, foreigner, right? They they're very interested in taking photos with, with the white guy because they they never see one. In Chengdu, you get looks, right? It's an international city, relatively international. Right. You get looks. Kids will say, mom, it's a Weiworen or something like that on the on the metro. But anyway, I take um, you know photos with these people, that kind of thing. So we got down there and um, we were there for about a week. I was doing what I always do, which is uh, shake hands and let people buy me drinks and take mm-hmm. photos with the high school kids and that kind of thing wandering around the countryside. And then I think there's these just, it, it sort of um, trickled in at first, kind of, or, or like a light rain, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, this information kind of kind of started coming in like a light rain and then didn't think too much of it, uh, just a little bit of information on the news. And then it got more and more oppressive and, and you began to sort of feel that 
it, it wasn't really just a light rain. It was actually going to be a serious thunderstorm. And, and, and then right. you realize it's going to be a hurricane, right? And so the, the news is trickling in like this and then and getting more and more intense. And, you know, my people are starting to call me from home and ask, what's the deal with this thing? And my first reaction was, it's nothing, right? These things are usually nothing in the Western media, right? Mm-hmm. So they hear something and it's amplified 10 times as much because it's China. So that was my first reaction. And um, it, now I think that was the right reaction. But uh, about two weeks after I had that reaction, I thought it was, I thought it was quite serious. And I right. was, um, maybe, or maybe a week, maybe a week or two after that, I really started being concerned for my family at that point. Mm-hmm. Because what happened was they started shutting, uh, start shutting things down. Right. People's, and if you're the if you're the one white guy in town, as soon as this this weirdness start hap, starts happening, and um, there are people there who remembered um, SARS, right, and they start looking at you a little strangely mm-hmm. uh, when they start they start shutting things down, and then there's this guy from out of town, right, and there's uh, suddenly people are talking or talking around you about people coming from um, Wuhan and things like that. You know, like oh, we heard that somebody's niece is coming back from Wuhan and, and, and right. things like that. But uh, what happened was they slowly, or, well, I shouldn't say slowly, but after a few days, they shut down all the streets uh, or all the roads leading into the to the small town, and they had cohorts, um, which for people who don't know what that is, they're members of the Communist Party who wear the you know they're not very. I wouldn't say they're very serious. They're they're kind of like citizens, sort of like citizen volunteers almost. But it's not it's not voluntary, but they're not really too serious. They're it's it's women with a red armband standing next to the road checking a list or something like that. Mm-hmm. That's the way it started. And then it got a bit more serious because the there was local. I, I can't say it was military, but sort of military militarized vehicles, police presence or something like that. Mm-hmm. I'm not exactly sure, but those started showing up, and we started getting actual sort of like men in fatigue uniforms blocking off the blocking off the road and checking people quite seriously. And then a complete shutdown. Everything shut down. Nobody in or out, no movement at all. Well, there were probably cars like, you know, going through the main the main road to go on to other places. But if you didn't live there, no one was allowing you to stop. Mm-hmm. And then it got even more serious. And we thought that somebody's, you know, somebody had come back and come back from travel in Wuhan and they shut down everything, everything. And you couldn't, um, uh, you were, uh, you were allowed, what they did was they came around the cohorts or whatever came around with um, tickets and gave them to every family. And you were allowed to go to the supermarket with a mask. And one person from your family per day was allowed to go to the supermarket to get goods. Every other store was shut down. Everything else was shut down. Very strange because Chinese, little Chinese towns are bustling with commerce all the time, you know. Um, but to see the, the, the street completely empty in the middle of the day is very strange. So... Mm-hmm completely shut down the streets after i don't know a couple of weeks only the supermarkets open you can only leave well you can you can leave the house but you can only go to to the supermarket if you've got a ticket you know once a day and then it became once every two days and then it became the supermarkets closed and we'll go around with a truck and bring people Mm. rice or whatever never any danger plenty of food that kind of thing everybody stocked up you know bought two big bags of rice and some meat and whatever. They did actually say that they were going to stop selling meat, but I don't think that ever happened. There was and, no uh, uh, to- toilet paper uh, hoarding like in the U.S.? <laughs> um, there's only 
Yeah, it's rice hoarding. Chinese people, I right. know it sounds like a stereotype, but... You, you buy what's important to you, right? Yeah. And we had two giant, I don't know, like 50-pound bags of rice. And actually, after it was all over, we had to, we had to come back home, and we, had, we still had like a giant... It was way... We way overdid... Well, grandma way overdid it, you know? But we were stuck in the house for, God, like a, a month and a half or something like that. And the only thing I could do every day was leave to one around the countryside. Mm-hmm. And so I would, I would, I would leave in the middle of the day and wander around the countryside. But my my kids, my wife, and um, my wife's parents were all together for I don't know, like a month longer than we were supposed to be there. Then ultimately, you know, they they got it under control, and uh, Sichuan was never that bad. Right. Uh, they had a few. They had a few cases, and um, they were able to. They were able to, I guess, cure those, and or I'm sure they had a few deaths, but. And then, then it was um, fine. Slowly, we we came back to Chengdu after after that, and had to stay in our um, in our little neighborhood for a while. We could you couldn't leave your neighborhood. Well, no, I take that back. You could leave your neighborhood, but you were checking in and out and getting your temperature taken, that kind of thing. And then after that, they I guess they thought they kind of had a beat, and and it was over. We taught we taught online, so I you know I teach school and I, I taught online for much longer than I wanted to until the end of March, I think. Mm. And then we all came back to school. So we were actually back to school last, you know, last semester. Yeah. But um, just to, just to wrap up that whole thing, we're back to normal. I mean, it's, uh, it was, it was beaten months ago. People, I, I, I don't know. I say that just because I think there's doubt out there. Uh, you see the sure. videos from Wuhan, but you, you never know for sure. But, you know, I live here. Everything's back to normal. There is only one thing that's different, which is that you must wear a mask on the subway. So mm. we're still wearing masks on the subway, um, I guess, because it's a confined space with, you know, circulating right. air or something like that. But, yeah, other than that, everything's back to normal now. How do they do it? Yeah. Uh, masks, 100% compliance. Uh, lockdowns, 100% compliance and close the border this is what people know they call this authoritarian which i I guess it is but we were we were done with it in about a month i think yeah i mean it's it i i still have some lingering questions about it given the experience of uh, asymptomatic transmission in the u.s and europe Allegedly, you know, and, and we, we don't know. I, obviously, expertise is now called into question across the board and not, not just in public health and everything. But it, with that being the case and just assuming that the characteristics of the virus in China must be the same, it seems unlikely that they could have possibly contained it. You know, and you do have, you know, continued things popping up in Kashgar and maybe that came over from Central Asia or a couple of cases in Shanghai, for instance, but it's surprising. I mean, I think that there is probably something to the prevalence of coronaviruses in Asia in general that led to some herd immunity or something that has allowed it to get get stamped down. But again, that's just... Um, it's because everybody would, eats bat, man. Everybody right. eats bat. Everyone eats bat, as yeah. we know. Yeah, my mother-in-law and they has have built up. Yeah, my mother-in-law <laughs> has eaten pangolin, uh, and she she said it was delicious. Um, the uh, it's, but I, it's I, the food of the gods. Yeah, the um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's it's interesting. I mean, you bring up uh, SARS one, and I I was not in China for that, but I was there shortly afterward, and it's not surprising especially for hong kong that that colored a lot of the response to this and there's a couple of reasons i mean 
you know, one is uh, SARS-1 was much more deadly for those who got the virus. So it was, uh, you know, really nasty. I think the survivor rates were, were pretty low. The difference is it was not very transmissible. And so there were some major clusters like Amoy Gardens in, in Hong Kong where it was transmitted through the sewage system. But, you know, it was pretty easy to contain, but it was it was a very, very deadly, deadly disease. This was kind of different in it had the same features of SARS-1. There were not really good treatment protocols, and so when it entered into the consciousness, it was seen as equally dangerous and much more transmissible. And so, you know, you can see how that would lead to a certain policy response. It was also a policy response that that for China had worked with SARS-1. And SARS-1, as I understand it, does not transmit as easily, or you know, you, you're you only contagious once you have a fever and stuff like that. So there's no asymptomatic transmission. And so that made it much easier to, to stamp down. But, but because this is what China was afraid of, was a massive SARS outbreak, so they treated it very, very seriously with these lockdown measures. Like you said, they're sort of set up in a way, both legally and psychologically, to do that. You know, you can weld people's doors shut, and that's uh, the, the response won't be uh, outrage. Although now we know that in the US, there's also not outrage when you do things that are effectively the same. But because that sort of set this path dependency, you know, that, that that's that's where you get into this like lockdown mania type thing. But it, yeah, it, it seems to have worked mostly in... Um, in East Asia, you know, Taiwan is uh, basically clear. Uh, Korea has a little bit more, I think, because they've allowed, been more permissive with foreigners coming into the country and perhaps reintroducing some strains. But I think, I mean, the the other, uh, so so for me to take a step back, I, I was uh, getting ready to go to China for work leaving January 1st. And I, I think I'm probably one of the first people in, in the U.S. to have heard of this because that was on maybe like a day or two before it started coming into the media. And I pay attention to Wuhan for some personal reasons. And so, you know, seeing this like pneumonia outbreak there kind of registered. And so ah, that's that's funny. That's unusual. And so got on the plane, get to Hong Kong. And it's uh, life is normal going back between Hong Kong and Shenzhen. And then I went up to Shanghai for some meetings and was joking with a colleague about the seafood market in Wuhan because that had been identified as at that time understood as the um, the place of the outbreak. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that I've actually eaten food from there, but I'm clean. So it's uh, but you know, then get back to Hong Kong. And this is still probably like January 10th or so maybe a little bit later and taking the high speed train between Shenzhen and Hong Kong and getting, you know, these alerts of like, well, if you've been in Wuhan and you've had a, if you've got a fever, please report to the health, health authorities here. And so they're starting to have that kind of happening, but it's not very serious. And then it was, yeah, it was like a, a few days later, then Wuhan gets locked down. I, I flew back to the U.S. and it was, you know, not a thing really still. And then within a couple of days, there was a lot more. And I, I realized, you know, for family reasons, I had to get back to China. So I, this now is probably like the January 21st or 22nd or so. And I'm back on a plane to China. But in the meantime, 
January in northeastern U.S., I had been going out for runs in the morning and had developed a really classic New England cough. And so I'm waiting to get into uh, back into Shenzhen, coughing kind of like crazy. <laughs> and got pulled out of pulled out of the line being like what's the deal and i had been like taking mucinex like crazy to try and like avoid this sort of thing and it didn't work so i i get pulled into this room and get basically asked a litany of questions and i i think you know at that time what did they know they didn't know a whole lot about even the symptoms but it was you know they were trying to see was okay it was not a dry cough so probably not a big risk everything so they they took a bunch of my blood which now we know i think would not have even told them whether or not I had the virus and sent me on my way after an hour or two. And I never heard anything back. So I'm guessing that I did not did not have it. But you know, I, I think you know, one of the features, like you mentioned of somebody from you know, a rumor of somebody from Wuhan being in the I mean, like that, that stayed around for a long time. I mean, like, and as far as I know, there still is a major stigma against people from Wuhan. I mean, I know that a um, family member of ours was visited by family. The parents came from Wuhan, had not been in Wuhan at all during this epidemic, and still had to like basically report to the local uh, health office to get their temperature taken like all the time. I mean, like it's just because it's on their ID card, you know, and that's kind of crazy in this almost um, lynching of, of people from there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wanted to say, I think that maybe not everybody, because our, our audience is probably predominantly Western and probably doesn't have as much experience with Asian people and especially Chinese people mm-hmm. to understand that Chinese, uh, I, I think it's for, for, People with a lot of exposure, like you and I, um, there's a joke about Chinese hypochondria. They are if there's a if there's like a um, you know bell curve of of uh, risk aversion for for sickness and you know unhealthy behaviors, the the Chinese are way way out there toward the extreme hypochondria. And as a society, I mean, and um, so if you if you hear anything about or if you hear a, a, a Chinese person tell it about any sort of you know health issue or disease or something like that you kind of have to take it with a grain of salt because um yeah as i say hypochondriacs yeah i i think that's uh that's fair i i think you know and then the other the other thing just to kind of get back to chinese are also like super discriminatory towards anybody from like other provinces right you know and that that's like built in and it's like well it's like first it's like not liking people from the other town and then it extends to the province and then the region i mean like the number of times that i've been in a meeting with somebody from southern china who just casually says you know i'll never do business with somebody from the northeast because they're they're too tricky because they eat too much noodles and then you you're in a meeting with somebody from the north and they'll say those southerners they eat too much rice like can't trust them this i mean this is just like very very common and so it's not surprising that a there was an intense reaction against people from hubei province in general and 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 Wuhan in particular, and they, you know maybe maybe that enabled some of the uh, the shut you know ways that the shutdown was was implemented and stuff. I mean, like then by the time I actually got back to the U.S. February 29th 
which was like literally probably like the day that things had really turned the corner in China. And then, you know, you had the first observed outbreak in in New Rochelle, New York. You know, there had been some in Seattle, there had been some in California, you know, but it was all very, very isolated. And but anyway, so it it essentially followed me. And so um, there was like a week or two, like I went back into the office and I had in the back of my mind, like this is this is going to blow up here, too. And so we're getting ready for a little while. And then, yeah, but by the by the end, so I was put into a a home quarantine and so was contacted by the town health office and had to just kind of take my temperature every, you know, there was some when I got back to the U.S. and went through customs there was a uh, procedure for, you know, having come from mainland China, so had to do this like very ersatz, not professional CDC screening that took forever. But, uh, you know, then, but, but part of it was basically had to take my temperature for two weeks. The town office started calling me every day to check in and see if there were any symptoms. Within a week, there were like actual like people getting sick around here. So they they stopped calling me because I was the least of their problems. And it was it was blown up. But I had had already prepared food and everything and had been psychologically disciplined to the, um, you know, staying at home and whatnot. But it was the, the reaction here was outrageous. I mean, all the the toilet paper stocking and everything. And it has been a really weird funhouse compared to how it was dealt with in uh, China. Here, it's just been like in every way, like a mirror image or like kind of a negative image of what you would want to do, right? I mean, like people are not, they don't have the right attitude. The government does not actually, you know, the experts and everything have been just outrageous, you know, created, turning masks into this weird politicized thing. I mean, like, I don't know, the the, the whole thing has just been totally wrong, in my opinion, and called into questions a lot. Now, at the same time, I mean, like, there's all of the conspiracy theorizing about the origins of it. And I'd love to hear your thoughts. I mean, my, again, this is completely uninformed speculation. I am sympathetic to the idea that it could have been a lab generated coronavirus, though, again, like you said, I mean, there's plenty of uh, natural ways, whether through food or whatever that, you know, that a virus reservoir could have gotten exposed to people in, in Wuhan. But, you know, I expect if it was a lab created thing that it was just released on, on through poor safety procedures and everything. I mean, that that's says a lot, you know, to my experience of China and being around medical facilities and everything. There is no way any government Nixon shut down the bioweapons program because the military said these are not predictable, these are not useful weapons. And like, there is no way that the Chinese government is sitting around and saying, all right, we have this potential weapon, you know, and we're going to just kind of show how destabilized and ineffective Western governments and Western people are, and we're going to demoralize them. I mean, the, the risks of doing that, not knowing what it's actually going to do to your home population the whole the, the fact that people some people that I think are very smart take this seriously is mind-boggling to me but I don't know if you have any thoughts now I, I think my original opinion was the same as yours that well it's probably it, it may still be the same as yours but my my first thought that was that it was the wet market mm-hmm. and then I thought it was a lab escape. And now I think um, it appears to be it's it seems that it's possible 
that it was in Italy well before it showed up in China. Yeah, I've this, seen is, this is my question about that, though, is um, and we, we need to have like an actual expert on. But if Italy, because uh, I saw the same thing and I understand like the timing and everything. In, in that case, I would expect that it actually came from like a mares or something, you know, that, that it came from the Middle East and ended up in Italy. Because I don't think that you have the same sort of virus reservoirs in Europe anymore as you would in parts of Asia. And like, even even if it originated in Wuhan, I think it probably actually came from Burma or, you know, somewhere else and got got brought over there. But um, that, that's, well, it's, that's, it's that's unlucky. Yeah, it's unlucky that the the lab is is in the same place where they right. had that, um, where they had that, uh, that military, you know, the world military games or whatever it was mm-hmm, called. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, this is this is China's line, I think, which is that it was brought over whatever, yeah, it was brought over by somebody. Right. These, um, the world military games were in Wuhan. I don't know. In September. A it few was. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was in the autumn. Yeah. And I mean, that's feasible, right? It's it's you know, it's it's good propaganda, but it's also feasible propaganda, which makes it good propaganda. So I don't know. I mean, I, I don't have I don't have a. Um, I don't have a good answer to that, and I agree with you. I don't. I don't like um, any of the. I certainly don't like any of the conspiracy theories that have them doing something incredibly stupid because that's not my experience of Chinese government. It's slow moving and and you know, um, it's uh, irrational in some ways. But um, they are. Yeah, I, I just don't see. I, I don't see them them taking that kind of a risk. Uh, so the worst thing that I think that might have happened was that they had an accidental leak and then covered it up, which is possible. Yeah. But yeah, that's that's about the extent of my sort of involvement in that. And you know, the thing is, I, I've i been here for, it's been over for us, right? In in China, it's it's over. We we take some precautions on the subway, but it's not in the news. I mean, not, not really. Not, it's certainly not a sort of moral issue, you know, you, you, you don't have people saying anything to you anymore about your behavior around right. COVID because it doesn't exist, right? And uh, so I don't ever think about it anymore. You know, it's it's out of mind, really, until somebody else brings it up. You right. Know, Western friends. Western friends bring it up. I think about it. But otherwise, it's not part of daily life anymore. Yeah. it's And it's very, very much uh, part of daily life here. I mean, I, I think, you know, you've got next waves and everything happening and, you know, we'll see. I mean, these uh, vaccines, vaccines are coming out. And I think perhaps we should discuss because I saw the news like Xi Jinping talking about using QR code health passports, you know, and I, I think that there will be Sort of, you know, so I, I've traveled to Africa. Uh, you have to have a, um, a yellow fever vaccination document inside of your passport, you know, so I could see that this becomes a requirement for travel and that would be accepted. But there's possibility of having a generalized health passport and that perhaps it would be on the blockchain and so provable that in order to travel, you have to show that you have health records for all sorts of things, you know, and that that this will become a part of your identity and whether or not you can travel 
internationally to start, but I expect that there will also be, you know, increased requirements for going to school and how children's health records are recorded and their their vaccinations and everything. You know, so I think there's going to be changes in how this is implemented technologically. Because certainly, I mean, my carrying around a piece of yellow paper that, you know, has some signature of somebody saying that I've got the yellow fever vaccination, that is sort of antiquated. And there are other better ways of of doing it, but that also raise a lot of questions too. So yeah, I um I think that there's a certain contingent in America that will find this abhorrent, but um I don't think that there's any contingent that uh, if they traveled abroad, really ever no nobody nobody has has raised hell about the little yellow cards that we carry around or they did some time ago but you know nobody nobody talks about it anymore so these things kind of they come up and if you don't make if you don't make the fuss when it first happens you're not going to do it when they they get more technologically evolved you know what i mean or if you do it's it's you're just shouting into the wind really but uh, it is possible to do you know you can as we've talked about before on the show you can you can create a um, an identity for yourself that is with, with uh, health information that's that's kept anon and you can you know use that you can use that uh identification the blockchain's a possibility sure so yeah we might we might see something like that there ha- there has been quite a lot of resistance to ids in america but that, that comes from the left as well as the right for two different reasons mm-hmm. so um i yeah i don't know i mean you know you will yeah i mean it's funny i mean you know after 9/11 there was there was talk about having a national id in the us and it was it was rejected. I, I, I wonder, I mean, 9-11 feels like the more like the last gasp of the time that went before than now. And the the objections that came from a uh, small L libertarian sensibility, you know, kind of history and not wanting to do it really were sort of broken then. And yeah, we don't have a national ID, but through the uh, requirements now for the real ID on your driver's license, you have a de facto one, right? You know, so everything is there. But, you know, so, so you, you have this camel's nose under the tent kind of thing that these things are increasingly accepted. And probably the better thing to do is just be more honest and have an actual national ID rather than kind of making people pretend to think that we don't but yeah anyways that that's just an aside yeah i mean if you want to travel you're gonna you're gonna do it or you can have a passport uh, right you, um. back to the I, I guess i kind of want to finish off by looping back to where we started which is mm. the the uh, the sort of what this thing what this thing has done to our society and um first of all i'll say how are we doing the first the first episode we made a we made our predictions right <laughs> right. We made our predictions and uh we're three weeks three weeks now, is that right? Yeah. Three weeks later. I can get no satisfaction. I can get no satisfaction. The world, by the way, if they, they don't uh, you know, if if we can get this thing done, if we can get Trump in the White House, I have friends who owe me just uh, more beer than right. than I'll ever be able to get through. But the the effect on society, and actually, I, I think what I wanted to loop back to was the vote. Right now, it seems that the the lawfare argument or the counter lawfare argument mm-hmm. part of it has to do with COVID, and you see this all over the place. Uh, Wisconsin is one that that is it Wisconsin or Michigan where they 
they uh, they allowed people to claim this status. This is in Wisconsin. Unable- yeah. Yeah. Okay. Un- we're, we're we're incapable of leaving home. I don't know what the status is called, but it's some, something to the effect of, of, you know, it's like the status for invalids, people who right. can't leave right. their home, allowing something like, I don't know, 120,000 or 240,000, some, some crazy number like that. And it was up from the highest it had ever been was something like 12,000 right. before that. And my, 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 understand, my understanding here is that COVID was not explicit. You know, there, there was not an allowance for COVID to qualify somebody for this. Uh, I've, it was, I've heard it both ways. And it was they, just done they retroactively. The, they yeah, the, exactly. Yeah, something like that. I've heard every every possible angle on this thing. Yeah, so I don't I, I don't know, but this that's one thing. And another one is just the unprecedented number of ballots then that come through the mail. The mm-hmm. the mail's ability to handle those things. And when you have what we could say is a as sort of an unprecedented number through the mail, then there is the opportunity there's there's an un, uh, uh, unprecedented opportunity for fraud to sneak in. Mm-hmm. Another another thing that happens is you see uh, I've seen absolutely insane things happen. I think it was Phil- Philadelphia, one of the convention centers or something, where they're doing the vote, and they've got this photo of a guy who's who um, I think he's a uh, Republican observer. He's they've they've got these those steel fences, you know, mm-hmm. that they use in stadiums and things like that to separate them away. And the guy must have been. 30 feet away from the counting table. Right. And he's standing yeah. there with, with binoculars, right? And they're using COVID as an excuse to put the observers so far away from the process that, that you can't see what's yeah. going on, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. I mean, I, I uh, have in my life voted voted absentee probably more, more often than not. But the, uh, you know, I don't think I've ever been closer than six feet to anybody while voting ever. You know, so the the idea that there needed to be some massive postal, so-called postal voting program is, to me, uh, just not accurate. And the way that that was handled, it just... At best, it creates an aura of suspicion around everything, right? You know, and if right. if if not, for, and it was it was not necessary. There are ways that this was all known months in advance. There are ways that you could have set things up to to do things very very differently. And they the, the most charitable explanation is that they were just asking for this kind of suspicion. The least charitable and perhaps the more accurate one is this was set up to enable some chicanery but we'll just see i i think that it yeah and it's it's just one of many things that have been very deeply corrosive to society at least here and it it, it probably has affected china a lot less but it's just um created just another point of suspicion of people of other political sort of priors and everything the way that people are treated for the mask stuff and I, I don't know I mean it's just it, it it's it's revealed a lot and I, I think the most important though and maybe this is good people can grow up but understanding how weak the foundation of much expertise is is right everybody has seen it the same people who in january or february are saying oh it's more important to talk about the flu season masks don't work everything and then they've they've completely flipped around and i think that is very unhealthy and there's there's no kind of humility to it it's in the first place saying like hey you guys are really wrong and bad people for 
talking about this virus and it's racist or whatever, you are you are bad people. And then X number of months later, it's no, 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 you are bad people for understanding. Even though we know so much more now, you 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 are bad people for not taking this as you know, sort of uh, serious, you know, bubonic plague scale issue. And now, obviously, I mean, it's it's going to it's very hard for that credibility that I think was really won through late 19th century, early 20th century, World War II of, of experts and professionals advancing society through, you know, what was seen as like a lot of knowledge and everything. All of that capital was built up and basically totally wasted in the Iraq war. And now this is my opinion, right? You know, where it's just... Yeah, you... You and yeah. I have, have talked about this as well um, with a lot of our friends, which is that there was some point, you know, maybe around the 2016 election, I'm not sure when, but there was a, the, the end of, uh, for many of us, the end of credibility for uh, expertise in the media. And, you know, I, I, I say that uh, as a generalization, you can still find quite good writers and genuine experts and genuine people in academia, but the... I, we we've talked about people that that now we get our information from weirdos with frog profiles or or you know like a, a Japanese anime right because uh, you see them you see them on Twitter just absolutely mop the floor with experts you know who don't know the facts or 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 you know, have these the the sort of orthodox academic or expert opinion which is right. nonsense right for instance I, I the the one that I, I I've got to say is the the w the who fauci the new york times washington post every single one of them said that masks were ineffective right right and then and that got memory hold yeah it's so bizarre i mean it, it's 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 it shocks me how how quickly it just went down into the memory hole. Now it's it's like a it, you know a one a it's it's what people what people mean when they say Orwellian you know rewriting right. of history just completely paved over the the fact that they all got it wrong. Right. And now of course we're going back we're going back and seeing that that masks are useless again. So whatever I I, I don't know whatever yeah whatever I mean the, it's the state it, needs or something yeah, like that. Yeah, I, I th- there, there's something to that. I think, you know, it's funny, I, I bought a few masks through the May. I had acquired a bunch kind of in, in January when everything, you know, started coming up and like real ones like N95 and sorry nurses, right, right, right. like, you know, but I mean, yeah. um, the uh, so got those, but now I'm on these like mailing lists, spam mailing lists. And like one of them is the uh, official mask supplier to the Biden campaign. And they... Uh, <laughs> You know, so delete. But no, they, um, you know, they're selling selling these. You know, and so so here's the thing: is uh, yeah, N95, KN95, which is the the Chinese Chinese ones. Those those are useful at the very least. They will reduce your viral load. Throwing like a scarf around your face is not particularly useful. You know, it, it, so it's is is shades of gray, and it people are not really think. But it, again, like it kind of comes down to we're going to like break our lives for something that for for many people will not basically i mean like what we should be doing is focusing on okay there are people that are vulnerable in our society elderly let's figure out how to protect them and not 
destroy the livelihoods of everybody there. And I think, I mean, we, we could go on for hours about uh, many of the kind of like class issues that are in this. I mean, I, I'm fortunate. I, I, I typically do not work from the office when I'm in the U.S. anyways, right? You know, so to me, it's not very difficult to have been working from home. And you know, I have I have a good job and a good income. If your job was like working in a movie theater or something like that, you know, you're, you're SOL. And the implications of that, and certainly I think that that's part of the attitude of these experts because they're in white collar sort of urban jobs that are protected and they're able to do this. And they look down at the down market, downscale people who for whom this is actually like been a, a really bad deal. Business owner is everything, you know, and, and I think that, you know, we could probably spend too much time on these issues. But it's again, like I talked about the corrosive effects, that is certainly one of them. And it's it's a distinction from China, where you don't have the same kind of bifurcation, you have many bifurcations, but this is not one of them. And there is still sort of a we're in this together mindset of people. And that is not the case here. Shall we leave it on that drop beat? Um, yeah, I mean, is, is that there too a, down? <laughs> that's too that's too much of a downer. I mean, I, I think that gosh, I'd have to think about it. I mean, I, I look, we've got we've got vaccines coming. Life should should be back to normal. I think within six months or so, and you know, normal will look very different. You know, and I, I think that's what we have to look out for is our basically what's going to happen with health passports everything like that, you know, and I think maybe my concern is, again, that there's this like taste for, you know, lockdown theater and stuff. I mean, you know, we, we're the same age. So the, um, the way that, and the US is the worst at it, because once you get locked into something, you don't change it. So the fact that we are still taking our shoes off at the airport because Richard Reed in London half-assedly tried to do something with his shoes, you know, I mean, like, that's just so wrong. And yet, 20 years later, we're still doing it. I mean, like, you know, and 20 years later, we're still in Afghanistan, you know, so it's um, who, who knows what long term effects are going to come. And if as as a pessimist, I can't see them as anything good. But I am certainly looking forward to to going back to normal, I, I especially for kids where I think this has been a really difficult experience, really looking forward to it for them. Well, I'll say then my final statement on the on the thing is, um, I'm looking forward to one of these vaccines working, my father, uh, well, my mom and my dad have both expressed they've they've never met their grandchildren face to face. Oh wow! They were they were going to do that the past uh, over the past summer, and um, you know they they're currently living. They they've never met them. My my daughter's three now, and um, they're they're kind of living the not the best years of their life, but you know some of those things some of those things that you don't want to miss about the small right. kids. So. I will leave this on a hopeful note, which is that we're we're almost there, and I, I I'm confident that my mom and dad will be able to come over and hang out with their grandkids by next summer. I think that that's that's not too hopeful a timeline. Yeah. So no, I I think so. All right. Well, so should let's uh, lock lock in also in one other way, which is I think next week we'll get through some of the works of Angelo Cotabia. Um, yep. So have a discussion on international relations and government, and uh, that that should be a, a good discussion. Yep, Cotabia next week. 
Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed our podcast, please hit the like and subscribe buttons. You can find us at www.thestack.link or on Twitter at thestack.link, all one word.